So SJ, thanks so much for joining the call. Really excited to be talking to you. Um, why don't you just give us a minute or two about what you're currently doing at the moment? Yeah, sure. Pleasure to be here. Um, so I run an organization called the Entrepreneurs Club, which has grown quite quickly in the last year. Um, I started it because I'm pretty new to the tech space, uh, joined, kind of worked for two separate organizations that were serving tech and just realized that it, was, it lacked in diversity. Um, and even though there were some exceptional people, um, women, people of color, um, and actually kind of more varied class backgrounds, I felt like the organizations I was visiting didn't reflect that at all. Um, so I started a community, a community that connected people from different walks of life uh, and getting them to go on a learning journey so that those people from more traditional backgrounds who don't necessarily integrate with more diverse communities have that access. And similarly, people from diverse backgrounds um, kind of have access to more mainstream um, companies or kind of opportunities. Yeah, no, that per plays perfectly into what we want to talk to you today. That's why I thought you're a great guest because you're trying to build a community and building a community is not as easy as it seems. In fact, we'll go right into the first sort of misconception, which is most people think that if you build it, they will come. That the hardest part is just building it and you're going to have this flood of interest and you're going to get thousands of inquiries. Is that the actual reality of it or not so much? Yeah, that's a really good point. I would say... It's 50-50. I think there are two phases of building a community. The first is decide who you're building it for and get really tight on like the age, the background, the, what they like, what they don't like, etc. So get really tight on who it is you're serving. Then um, the next phase is going out and reaching those people and reaching your core audience. So when we built our first community, we started with 40 people who we proactively targeted um, and chased down, like <laughs> we went as far as turning up at the workplaces and be like, I want you to join my community. Um, and I tell you like, it's not two phases. The third phase is when the, they will come because those people, your early converters, I would say, start to talk, they start to tell their own communities. And then that's where the they will come, come from, comes from, I would say. So yes, it's a misconception because you don't build and then jump to stage three, you build, you convert people who matter and then you use that kind of the power of their voice to get more people involved. So how did you even decide on who your target community was? Because, uh, you know, I'm trying to build a community as well. And sometimes I throw it out there and see who does this message stick with or who does it resonate with, whether it's age or gender or whatever it is. And then that becomes my target audience. Or is it the reverse that you have to have that target audience in mind before you put the message out there? Yeah, good. I say you have to have your why in mind. Like, what is it you want to achieve? Um, and then who do you want to achieve that through or with? Um, so our big why was like, okay, we exist in social silos in London. Like we say, oh, London's so multicultural, but it's as multicultural as sitting on the tube as, you know, from a different, from someone from a different background. But when you get to the workplace, that is not multi multicultural. So that was like our big why. And then the question is, okay, so who, who is part of that story? And I think we had two groups. We had tech professionals who are exceptional at what they did and changing the way we work. So there are some companies like Monzo, Revolut, et cetera, that people um, respect a lot. And we were asking who are those people behind that? Because we knew that if we got those people on board, 
the credibility and respect would come. So we went straight to the kind of people from Spotify, from Revolut, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's how we identified it. And then the next, the second group for us were that, okay, we want uh, people who are slightly more junior or less experienced to, who want to look up to those people to join our community. Um, and that was a little bit more open. We cared more about like social demographics and gender and class and race and all of that jazz. So that, that was a bit more open. But we were lucky in the sense that tech is really clear about who the influencers are and who the influencers aren't or which companies are cool and which companies aren't. So we had our like North Star of those companies and then just hammered them, <laughs> the, the most senior people at those companies to, um, to help us design our, our programs. And that doesn't sound like an easy task. I can imagine trying to reach out, cold calling Spotify and Monzo. You must get hundreds of outreaches. What did you do literally? Was it you're knocking on their doors or you just sent them 27 emails until they responded to one of them? I mean, how did you go about it? <laughs> yeah, persistence pays. That's my favorite quote. <laughs> I never listen to those. Um, I, I think, again, coming back to the why, the fact that we want to build a, a diverse community is um, something that's just fresh uh, in their world. So I think hitting them with that was the first thing. The second thing was, um, it's a really good question. Do you know what? I think we're quite fortunate. We identified them, reached them, assumed that 50% of the kind of initial group that we want to target wouldn't turn up, wouldn't wouldn't respond would get too busy but there would be 50 percent that would be more interested or which like 10 percent are your kind of real people who really love your stuff right so in answer to your question how um i think we just hit them up typical ways like linkedin email um went to some events that some of their companies were hosting and then just got chit chatting um, i think that the most important thing is when you meet someone in person it leaves such a lasting impression on them so People can hide behind LinkedIn, but you know, <laughs> they're always gonna give, a, give their number or say, yeah, let's meet for a coffee when you meet them in person. So I'd say going to events was probably the thing that worked most for us in terms of getting that stickiness from people. Yeah, I mean, networking is a huge part of it. In fact, I looked at your board and people that are part of your council and you've got some stellar names on there. Speak about the, the miscon well, not misconception, but the power of networking and how you managed to assemble such a strong board. Was it literally through word of mouth and actually meeting people one-on-one? -on -one? And that's how you were able to get top CEOs and chairmen and chairwomen, should I say, as well on your board? Yeah, good. I would say build relationships. Like everyone on my board are people I've known for at least three, four, most people I've known for over five years on my board. Um, so like one of our patrons, the chairman of Barclays Bank, people go, oh, like, how did you get that guy on your, on your, like, as a patron representing your work? I met him four years ago and I've stayed in contact. I've visited his offices with no particular common purpose. Like, I didn't know I was going to start the Entrepreneurs Club four or five years ago, but I felt like this person may be kind of beneficial for me at some point in my future. And actually, he's a really cool guy. He's really smart. We get on, like, let's stay in touch. So, I would say cultivate your network way before you start anything. Um, one, two, leave a lasting impression. Be about something. I was always about diversity. I was always about creating social change. So it wasn't a surprise when I went back to the chairman of the Financial Times and was like, hey, I'm starting this thing. You know what I'm about. Can you be my, my chairman? And he was like, of course, because I've known you for years. So I think building anything overnight is almost impossible, but cultivating the right relationship so that when you're ready to launch something, 
you've got everyone in your WhatsApp and all you're doing is dropping people WhatsApp or calling them on the weekend. So that, yeah, and that conversion is quite easy. Yeah, no, that sounds good. I mean, keeping those relationships intact and keeping in contact with people when you don't need them, it almost makes them want to work with you when you actually do need them because they see for you, it's not just transactional. It's more of a long-term invested kind of relationship. Would you say that's the truth or? Spot on. Absolutely. Um, and actually I hate podcasts where people say generic shit and I'm like, I didn't get anything from that. So <laughs> I'll be a bit more practical on this one. Um, I would say, so the chairman of Barclays Bank, I met because I was on a board that he chaired and I got onto that board because I knew someone else that I met at a networking event whose wife was on the board. And he said, look, they're recruiting. I think you'd be great. I think you'd bring something different. Join. So, um, I, my kind of more practical advice would be a lot of pe a lot of charities have an exceptional body of like 60 plus year olds or 50 plus year olds who have achieved so much made so much money and they've got all this time they want to give back right that is an incredible place for networking with people who aren't just influential but influential and have the resource to create change so um i have had like in the last, since, even since COVID, I've had five introductions to incredible companies and they've all come from people I've sat on boards with, where if I met with you four times a year, you know me well enough for me to drop you an email or a note and say, can you make an introduction? So I would say that's a real practical thing that I'd encourage more people who are like sub, you know, whatever age or, or early out um, to join because you do, you are an expert in something, join a board of a charity and it's likely that the other people on that board have accomplished a serious level, like level of achievement in life and are able to give back and support you as well. And you must be a master networker because I can imagine a young 20 something year old with a bunch of 60 plus probably, you know, white males on a board or whatever it is. I mean, that seems like a, a group dynamic that is not very common. You know, they expect you to be hanging out with teenagers or I don't know, making Instagram videos or all that kind of stuff, but you're, dealing with people that are so different from you yet you've managed to you know form that communication channel and, and build a relationship that's bared food for yourself so when it comes to networking how did you become such a master at networking apart from being on a board or anything like that but was there a, a, a tool or ways of interacting with people or you know really tangible things that you did in order to be good or become competent at actually networking yeah, good. I think one of my biggest curses were became a big gift for me in networking. So my everyone like I'm academically quite sharp. I did well at school. Like I knew all the facts for every exam paper, whatever. I could win stuff like that. But my general knowledge is zero. <laughs> like so, I sat in a room with the manager. I can't even remember his name of the English football team at the time. And I literally was sat at a table and I was going to turn around and say, "So what do you do then?" Like my general knowledge is that bad. And someone had to nudge me. Like, oh, he manages the English football team. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, cool. Good thing I didn't ask. So that's a side point to say that curse or that like thing that I'm almost embarrassed about has become my strength. What I then do is use that to inquire about people. So it's very likely I walk in a room and know nothing about what anyone does, whether it's a banker, whether it's a journalist or whatever. But because of that lack of knowledge, I start to ask them questions and get them talking. And I have a gen genuine interest in human beings. So whatever you're doing, I make sense of it and I kind of just learn from it, right? So I would say 
like the three main things I always think about in terms of what I what, what I've observed that makes me a slightly better networker than other people is have a why. Like I'm very confident, not because I think I'm great, but I think the mission that we're solving, like the problem we're solving is incredible, right? So I hide behind my why. I walk into a room saying, if I get five people involved in what I'm doing, I'm solving such a big problem that's beyond me. Um, and I often have to remind myself of that because if you're walking in a room and you feel like it's about you, you kind of shy away. It's human to not want to kind of seem so um, self-assured or, or brash. So have a why. I'd say the second thing is to have a genuine interest in people. You can either connect through common knowledge um, or you can connect by just being inquisitive about what they're up to and how they're doing. Humans love to teach. We love to share what it is we're doing. We love to impart knowledge. So if you give someone else a vessel like to impart knowledge in, I think that's really helpful. And then you've learned something new. Um, and then I think the third thing is more practical, have a mechanism for keeping in contact with that person. So I was at um, Rombert, which is an international dance um, studio um, or dance theater, better still. And I, the editor of Vogue magazine was there and there were a few other, a few actors and actresses there, etc. And obviously, I'm there thinking, God, who am I amongst all these incredible people? Um, but all I did was think, okay, I'm here for a purpose because I've got an incredible why. I'm going to have an interest. I, my fashion sense is terrible. If I meet the editor of Vogue, she can teach me a thing or two <laughs> about how to match your top of trousers. So have a genuine interest. And then the third thing for me was the, the mechanism of, okay, ask if I could grab her number or her email address. Um, and then just have it on the spreadsheet. I might, you know, be interested in supporting girls in fashion at some point in the future. Um, have her on a spreadsheet, drop her an email, and just kind of keep in contact. So I, I would say for really high net worth or highly influential people, every six months I might check in with them and see how they're doing. Um, not because of their pockets, but just because they've achieved incredible things. And I just want to kind of be up to date or learn from what it is they're doing or different areas that they're dominating in. Yeah, no, that sounds great. There's one thing that you mentioned there that was pretty interesting to me, which was around sharing. You know, a lot of people are intimidated to share their story or to even share their knowledge in certain forums. And that's a big part of building a community. You need people to engage or to share or to, to actually want to do those types of things. How do you think you, you foster that community and encourage people to share and kind of break out of their shells to, you know, not be so reticent or conservative and, and know that it's okay to share. Mm. So your question is, how do you get people do it first? I'm quite vulnerable. Like I've cried at work. I've led teams and um, just been so when I was going through a tough time in my relationship, I was really open about it. So lead the way on sharing. I think we're, in a really beautiful time where the corporate mindset is is like being dismantled in a number of ways. And I think that's what I love tech, love about tech. People come into work with flip-flops and shorts, right? And if the leader of that those organizations didn't do that, I doubt other people would. So I would say lead by sharing. There is no shame in being human. Um, and in fact, like I remember do that with everyone. Everyone, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but everyone shits, eats and sleeps, right? We're all fundamentally human. And I remember even saying to like the chairman of Barclays Bank, I'm having a really tough time because of my relationship. And that just opened the conversation. He's as human as I am. And he, he spoke about relationships and stuff. So um, 
I would say if you're building a community and you want people to share, start by doing that um, and forget looking good because it's, you know, you don't build a community through looking good, right? You build a bunch of corporate people who pretend and we're not in, interested in that at all. So um, I would say that's probably the biggest thing. And secondly, marry that up with being sharp about something. So I feel confident to be vulnerable because I feel like I'm respected for other things, if that makes sense. Whereas I think if I just came to work a week and sob, <laughs> um, people wouldn't be interested in what I thought about the budget this year, you know, but, yeah. um, or what problems there are to solve in the organization. So I'd say marry the two up and, and be very forthcoming about both. And people will buy into that because communities are, in equal measure, people sharing and being vulnerable, but people learning from other people. So I want to come, I want people to be free, and then I want to learn from them in terms of what, what it is they can teach me. Yeah, I, I completely agree. In fact, I was speaking to someone else on, on, on another episode of the podcast. We were talking about sharing and being vulnerable and all that, that kind of stuff. And he alluded to the fact that sometimes he's, he's conservative about sharing because he doesn't know when sharing could come back to bite him. Maybe he'll say mm. something about his personal life and people now know that, oh, you have a tough relationship or whatever it is. You know, have you ever yeah. shared something that you kind of regretted afterwards? Have I ever shared anything that I've regretted? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Um, I think... In one of the organizations, in my old organization, we were super transparent. And I think I might have shared my salary just openly. And someone, when we were resetting the budget, I think someone made a comment. And that really stuck me because in my head, I was like, I work for that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so don't, don't be sorry because I, you know, I work for it and I can, I can command that salary. Um, but at the same time, so I think, I think there is that risk. There's the risk of that. But then you've got to think about what are the pros and what are the cons. The pros of sharing are that people are encouraged to share and be themselves. The cons are that you might rub one person up the wrong way. And depending on who that person is, that could have an influence on you. But does that mean you go through coming to work kind of hiding yourself? Does that mean you come into work like not sharing things or second guessing your words because of some unknown consequence. I just think that's inauthentic and it's not, and it's what makes people not want to go to work. Right. Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, there's, there's times when office politics and people try and play the game, you know what I mean? Where, whereby, Oh, I don't want to share this or, Oh, I know that information about this guy. I can bring it up during, you know, salary negotiations and all that kind of stuff. So there's two sides to that coin, but there, there's something else that I thought was pretty interesting, which was, in terms of building a community, a lot of people think that you need to sort of spray and pray. And by that, I mean, have a Facebook group, have an Instagram group, have a TikTok group, have all these different platforms. In your experience trying to build a community, would you say it's better to go narrow and deep within one sort of platform or outlet of building a community, whether it's maybe an emailing list or a newsletter or a social platform, whatever it is, or would you rather create multiple avenues for people to engage with your community? And are there pros and cons or, or either of those? Yeah, good. Before I answer that question, I think on your last point of pros and cons, um, I think, again, leadership must be very clear about where to draw the line. Someone came to me once um, and said to me, oh, so-and-so took a day off and said they were taking a day off because of X, but really it's because of Y. And I had to stop it there and say, that person gave me a reason. It's their, it's their entitlement to take a day off. 
I don't care about the reason and it's not your role to come and tell me that. Um, and similarly, when people are running late and someone wants to mutter, I stop it there because I think they wouldn't like it if it happened to them and I would hate it. Do you know what I mean? And I'm, I'm people's managers. So I think um, without kind of ranting too much, I think that authenticity has to come from the top again. And leaders should know to stop people in their tracks when they want to foster, even though that piece of information is quite valuable in the moment, right? You're like, oh, really? Oh, that's juicy. That's interesting. I think you need to let go of that emotional side, stop people in their tracks and build a culture whereby you're not kind of ratting out or speaking about other people behind their backs. Um, sorry, I just wanted to share that. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's fine. I wouldn't know specifically the answer on your next question because I've always gone narrow and deep. Um, so I'm not big on Instagram. I, I've only joined Instagram a couple of years ago. Um, similarly, I came off Facebook for years and then only jumped on like 2018, 2019. Um, I think from my experience of friends who are much more influential on Instagram, there is a much lower conversion rate. So it depends on what you want that community to do. So I've got such a tight community. When an opportunity comes in or some, I want someone to, something to do something, the conversion rate is much higher. So I could have 10 people in my community and speak to um, them all and know probably six of them will respond or say something, if that makes sense. Whereas if you scale that up on Instagram, 60% of your community are not going to really do much or not going to buy or not going to do anything, if that makes sense. And I think it's far more, in my opinion, my strategy is speak to the people who can, who want what you do, speak to the people who have the resource to act on that. Because I think a lot of Instagram speaks to people who don't have the money, the time or the resource to buy whatever that person wants to sell. Um, and then, then speak to the people who you have really strong relationships with. Um, that's my strategy, but I don't want to disregard the power of social media because we've got Kim Kardashians of this world who are millionaires of that. So clearly there's another strategy out there and I'd be interested in exploring it um, because I might be limited by just having success in one domain. But that's the thing that's worked for me, I would say. Yeah, no, that makes sense. There, there was something you, you mentioned there, which is pretty interesting, which was, you know, building a community and getting people to buy whatever proposition you're, you're putting out there, which leads me to, to believe that a lot of people think you build a community just for building a community's sake, but you can build a community for a particular objective, right? Whether it's to buy a product or to subscribe or do whatever it is. How did you go about setting the objectives for your community and how do you go about measuring them? Is it based on the number of members that you have or mm. you know, all those types of things? Yeah, good. I think communities without revenue are unsustainable. I've built enough communities in my younger years that didn't have revenue models and burnt myself out trying to make those happen. Um, for a community to work, you need someone driving it, either on a part-time or a full-time basis. If someone is driving it on a part-time or full-time basis, it's unfair to ask them to do that for free because they could be getting a job from elsewhere. So I think thinking about a revenue model to sustain a community is absolutely like necessary. Churches are the most apparently altruistic communities we have that aren't about money and apparently entirely about faith. And they take an offering, you know? So I think, um, I think it's a bit community and money don't have to be mutually exclusive. Um, in answer to, so your question was more around like 
sorry. I, I, I love to rant. I love to ramble and then I forget <laughs> the cause. No, that's fine. That's fine. It was sort of two questions jumbled in one. So the first point was around the business objectives of building a community. And then the second one was around the metrics. So how do you measure the success of a community? Is it based on the number of members or is it based on how many times each person posts or, you know, how do you measure success and know the community is thriving versus when it's not? Good. So yes, one, set your objective. Our objective is actually to have uh, a more diverse space in tech. Um, so what we do, so that's the first objective. The second is of the people we're serving, we want to see them progressing, especially if they're from underrepresented backgrounds at the same rate as their peers. Um, and then the third thing is we want that community to be financially sustainable. So they're the, they're the objectives we set. Um, yes, I would definitely measure them. So in terms of the numbers, we're always measuring how many women are joining our community, how many ethnic minority people of the ethnic minority groups, which ones, you know, are we, are we getting more African, uh, Africans, more Caribbeans, more Bangladeshis, etc. Um, so that's the first thing we're kind of measuring. The second is the impact. I start looking at what are the salaries of the people joining our community when they join, and then what are the salaries after a year, after two years, etc. And for me, having that scientific approach really helps you to measure whether your community is serving its purpose. So I think having a science and actually measuring the impact is absolute. And then the third is financial. Are we paying the bills? Are we making a profit? And are we making enough to reinvest in what we're doing so we can grow even bigger? Um, and so far that has worked for us quite a lot. Um, so, so in answer to your question, setting objectives is mass. Having your why is the first thing. Setting your kind of three key objectives of what does that why look like for you is the second thing. And then thirdly, I'd say be massively scientific. I did science at uni, so I can't divorce myself from science. Um, but be massively scientific about how you're measuring um, yourself against that. Every January, I take two weeks, the first two weeks normally off work and just go to somewhere where there are green fields and a hotel and I just walk around think about my why and then I come back to the hotel and start like mapping stuff out on a spreadsheet or on like whiteboard paper etc um, and that really helps me define what those three things are for that year and how we're measuring it for that year and then I come back into the office like a lunatic and say right guys <laughs> <laughs> oh man there was something you said earlier on too that made me chuckle you said oh when I built a community in my younger years and I'm like you're so young did you build a community when you were nine years old or what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the second point was about how uh, you're a scientific person and I, I'm an engineer as well so I'm always very methodical in the way I do things and there's an there's an you know an adage or an old saying about what doesn't get measured doesn't get done so i always try and measure as much as possible because then that's a, a hardcore fact that people can't escape from um there, there was something that i thought was pretty interesting which was in terms of creating a community there are other organizations that i've worked with and mentored and and and, and spoken at in terms of improving diversity in tech and when those organizations already exist i can imagine that you must second guess yourself and think, why would I create a community when one already exists or there's a company already doing this? Talk a little bit about the value of creating a community, even though something else like it already exists. That's a really good point. And I've often struggled with that myself. Um, I think 
we have how many people do we have in this country 70 million or close um around there yeah something around there that er, there's no one company that's going to serve 70 million people in whatever it is you want to serve them in there is nothing wrong with having multiple organizations serving the same purpose i had a charity that scaled quite quickly um before this and it's still going strong and i, I kind of stepped away from it or i'm still on the board of it but the thing that really used to irritate me about a lot of our funders, they say, why are you different from so-and-so? And I say, we're not. <laughs> but the problem exists and we're solving the problem for kids who haven't got it. So stop asking me why we're different and start asking me about the problem and how your funding can help us solve it. And I think it's the same thing um, for, I I'm very new to tech. I joined tech two years ago because two entrepreneurs who I really respected we're setting up companies in this space. I shadowed them and I was like, wow, there's no diversity. What can I do about it? Of course, I'm not the first person to spot this problem, but it doesn't mean I, they, I shouldn't be the only person. And there will be people who come after me. Everyone has their own flavor. Everyone is trying, from a scientific perspective, everyone's trying different recipes and different methodologies and pulling different levers. One organization, two or three, may have levers that have a much bigger impact. Let the rest of them learn from that and let's start kind of really thinking about how we collaborate on what's working and what's not, rather than who is doing it and whether they should be the only people doing it. Yeah, no, those are great points. I often think to myself, if everyone thought that way in terms of something already exists, so I shouldn't attempt to do it, we wouldn't have half the things we have today. I mean, everyone have thought, would have thought MySpace already exists. Let's not create Facebook, you know, or even Thank the first motor vehicle there wouldn't have you know been a tesla or any of those kinds of things so it is a barrier and it's a bit odd that people ask that question although i do you know angel invest and i i'm part of the venture capital community as well and that's a key question it's because people want things that are defensible you know because someone yeah. else can just cannibalize on your business um, if you're both doing the same thing based on if they maybe have more resources so defensibility is a key thing but I think it's more important perhaps in a business as opposed to building a community because multiple communities can exist at the same time. But um, no, those are very interesting points actually. What, what, could, what do you think you would do differently now that you know about creating this community and engaging mm -hmm. with it? What would you do differently compared to, you know, or, or what would you tell SJ of two or three years ago when she was just starting out that you know now? I think coming back to the point of um the strategy of do you go narrow and build deep relationships which have worked for me or do you have a social media following and you know a backing and i have shied away from social media mostly because if i'm going to be honest it's not the thing that really interests me i spend like five minutes every two days looking at instagram or whatever um so it just doesn't appeal to me as a human, which is why I don't use it. But I think that's a blind spot. I think younger J um, or SJ could um, have benefited from both. And I think for the rest of this year, I'm probably going to dabble a little, a little bit more into building a bit more of a social presence because I know not everyone is like SJ and people enjoy going on social media and people spend a lot more time on it. So why not reach that audience? Um, so yeah, I would say if you're an influencer and you have loads of following um, and you're one of those influencers who I've seen who had loads of following but you're struggling to convert that into finance, it's probably because your relationships are weak. So come back my way 
and start building relationships with people with the money, the means and the resource to buy your services. But if you're like me, where I would say compared to similar organizations in our space, we're generating a lot more revenue and we're growing a lot more quickly, but we don't have the millions of followers. So I would say if you're like that, don't give that up, like work that, but think about how you can kind of spread your um, wings a bit more and encourage more people to come into your community. Um, and hopefully this time next year, I can drop you a note and be like, hey, we've got X thousands or millions of followers. <laughs> I listen That's to my cool. advice. That's the dream, you know, hopefully you, <laughs> you become an international influencer. Um, but I think that's a really good practical note to end on. You know, people can know which way they swing and try and tilt towards the other side. Um, in terms of sort of last words that you'd like to leave with the audience, what, what's like a, a key message either maybe about your business or personally that you'd like to leave for the audience to, to take away? Yeah, I would say whether you go for the strategy of being big where everyone knows you or tiny with deep, close relationships, your brand is everything. Um, I laugh because I did, I went to summer school at Oxford and they encouraged me to apply and I was too scared to apply as an undergrad and I applied as a postgrad and did some research there. And then when I left, I thought, my God, this, in, this company, this university is a company, their brands are so strong that they charge you thousands to join them and then they decide whether you join them or not like that's crazy imagine someone coming to you and said i've got 10 grand take it for your service and you go mm, actually now i'm going to turn you down that brand is incredible like oxford have done branding like never before and i think the reason why i've been able to convert a lot of the people in my community to doing something is because they believe in me whether it's giving me funding or buying something that we're selling is because they believe in me so irrespective of your strategy work on your brand your personal brand and your business brand fantastic thanks so much sj <laughs> thank you for having me <laughs>